God is good. And all the time? All right. Well, you have experienced it maybe in music or in nature or in the, the brush of the artist or the lens of the photographer or you fill in the spot. But things that you have seen and experienced in this life that have just been beautiful. You know, it just caught your eye, it got your attention, and, and you stopped and you, you said, it's, it feels good to be alive because of this beautiful instance. Maybe it was a sunset. You know, sometimes when you're driving along the road and you notice all these people pulling off to the side of the road, you're going, what's all, what's all the commotion about? And you realize, oh, it's the sunset. It's beautiful. People are stopping to look at this. You know, or I remember the first time it really snowed out here, the first year we were here. And I was coming from my house uh, on the south side of the 10 freeway on Cherry Valley. And I come up to where the 10 is, and all of a sudden, just the mountains just covered in white majesty of snow. I hadn't seen it yet. And I just went, wow, that is beautiful. And just the beauty of God and his creation and everything he does. You know, or, or the beauty of a, just a gracious, glassy, clean wave breaking across in the ocean, you know, and I was thinking about that the other day. I'm no, just kidding. Um, I had a professor in college, uh, Dr. Harold Fagel, who taught me Greek. And I remember, I do remember some things from my college education at La Sierra. And lots of theology, lots of Hebrew and Greek, all of that type of stuff. But it's interesting the things that we remember. One of the things that he said, I remember him stopping the class one day, just kind of out of the blue. And he said, Gentlemen, there's something you must always remember to do. And I thought, okay, this is that nugget, you know, the professor's going to give you. And he said, every day of your life, for the rest of your life, you must stop and find and notice that one thing of beauty and grandeur, like a sunrise or a sunset or a flower or whatever it is, but you must find that every day because those are the moments that you will always remember that no matter what is happening and what's going on, God is so beautiful and so big and so extravagant in what he does. Now that's some real theology. That's the real stuff. And it's interesting to me that that God creates in such extravagant extravagantly excessive and beautiful ways. Almost it seems wasteful at times. Let me explain what I mean. There are places on, this, on the face of this earth that, that God has created something that is beautiful that none of us will ever see. No human being will ever see it. Take, for instance, a, a beautiful wildflower up, way up in the Alps somewhere in some little crevice, rock crevice, that no one's going to see, but it's there. Doesn't that almost seem like a waste if nobody's going to see it? Why would God do that? So extravagant. A little excessive. Maybe even wasteful. Maybe even needless. But maybe God is a God of excessive and extravagant beauty. Let me, let me unpack this a little bit more. You see, in our society, it seems like if it, if it doesn't serve a utilitarian purpose, it doesn't serve a practical purpose, if it's not utilitarian, then why, why do it? Why create it? Why, why do it? 
But God seems to do things just out of beauty that maybe don't serve a, a practical purpose. And he's God, so, so he can. But in our society, we say, well, that's a waste, maybe even needless. Let me share with you a few things. As I've been, as I've been tampering into astronomy and with my telescope, I, I'm, I'm learning enough to forget enough to be dangerous and get things wrong. So I've written them down. Scientists and astronomers are saying that we have at least 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. At least 100 billion galaxies. Seems a little excessive, doesn't it? There are billions of stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. Now, we're going to show you a picture of our Milky Way galaxy. I'm going to put it up here. And just for you to start to get a picture a little bit more. Now, this is the Milky Way galaxy. And down here, kind of in this area, you might see like a little black strip. We're going to zoom in on that so you can see what it says. We are here. <laughs> okay, you're right there. You can, your Orion is over in there. Uh, you got the Ring Nebula. You got all these different nebulas and so forth. And... And if we zoom back out again, let's remember how small we are. We are right there, and that's just the Milky Way galaxy. And scientists say we have at least 100 billion galaxies, 100 billions of those that we will never f see or, or experience fully, at least not now. It seems a little needless. Why? If we can't see it and we can't we can't benefit from it. Let me take it a little, little further. Scientists say it would take us 2,500 years just to count the stars in our galaxy if we did it one star per second. 2,500 years just to count the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Okay? So let's think about another thing to realize how big this is. How long would it take us to fly to the nearest star? Okay? Just past the sun. Alpha Centauri. If we were to travel at the speed of light, okay, which is 186,000 miles per second, okay, and the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, is 4.3 light years away, and one light year is 6 trillion miles. Are you already lost? It's like, okay? And we were going to travel to this star by rocket, and the rocket traveled one mile per second. This is how long it would take us just to get to that star. Okay? It would take us 11 and a half days to travel 1 million miles, 3.17 years to travel 1 billion miles. With that said, here's how long it would take. It would take us 760,000 years to reach Alpha Centauri, the nearest star. 760,000 years. Can we at least agree this is a little excessive? <laughs> A little extravagant, uh, maybe, is it really needed? Is it really purposeful? Let me just read to you from this book I got for Christmas called Indescribable. And it's a book by Louis Giglio and Matt Redman, and uh, wonderful images from the Hubble telescope and so forth. I want to read to you just a, a, a paragraph from here where they, they, they talk about what, what I'm processing. Perhaps one of the most striking things is not all that we can see, 
but all that we can't see. As we peer farther and farther into the reaches of the universe, our exploration has gone only to affirm that there's far more out there than we will ever know. The more we discover, the more it becomes apparent that in his divine extravagance, God made extra. But why create stretches of the universe that will never be seen? Why be content for distant galaxies to go completely unnoticed for thousands and thousands of years? It is a mark of extravagance in the heart of our creator God. God is not like us. So often our nature is to cut corners. If there's a room people rarely go into, we're unlikely to consider keeping it tidy. Or say, for example, we're decorating a room and there's a piece of wall hidden from sight. We may not go to the trouble of painting it. Yet the maker of all things is not like that. He does not cut corners or sweep things under the carpet. He has stretched out the universe, creating beauty in places our eyes and even our telescopes will likely never have the privilege of gazing upon. He is a God of extravagance, unimaginably glorious, completely off the charts of our understanding and, we, and way beyond the powers of our description. Our God is a God of extravagance. A God of excessive beauty. Today, I want to look at a narrative in Scripture, in the book of Matthew, where Jesus acknowledges someone's gift of extravagant beauty. It's found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13. And it's also recorded by the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke and John. And we get some more details from, from John on this and from Luke. But I want to look at Matthew's account. And I, I find it interesting that here in Matthew chapter 26, this narrative is sandwiched between two other narratives where the religious leaders are plotting to kill Jesus before the story we're going to look at. And then immediately following this story, we have, we have the, the narrative of Judas being willing to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So it's interesting that right in the heart of this, it's like Matthew is saying, here's the nugget. Here's, here's where it's at. It's about this extravagant, excessive giving to Jesus out of our love. And so Matthew begins in verse 6, and he says, When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head. Now here's Jesus, and I like what, what uh, I think one commentator said. He said, this is the last supper before the last supper. This is, this is a dinner party, if you will, an honor for Jesus. And all of his friends are there, all the outcasts. Simon the leper, the one who'd been healed of his leprosy. And, and if you read John's account, you'll find out that Mary was there. And that Mary is this woman who, who had had demons cast out of her. You have the disciples there, and, and Lazarus is there, who's been raised from the dead. I mean, that's the type of dinner party I want to go to. You know, someone's been raised from the dead. Someone's been exercised. Someone's been healed of leprosy. There's a lot of stories to tell at this dinner party. And Jesus is there. And this woman comes in and stirs things up, not with what she says, but with her actions. And she comes in and she has this spikenard ointment, this oil. And she breaks the flask. 
And this oil, the aroma, fills the house. It's this little pungent smell that, that everybody smells and recognizes. And it's not just a drop, which, which typically people would do, a drop on the head, maybe on the feet, but she pours it out. And we learn that the amount that it cost her for this oil was a whole year's wages. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would do that. That I would take my whole year's er earnings and buy this and give it away. And she did. Now, this isn't part of what I have to say to you, but it's just kind of interesting. This woman gives her whole year's earnings away, in a sense. A little excessive, you would say, a little extravagant for Jesus. And then Judas goes and sells Jesus for four months' worth of wages. A little different. A little different heart. And so she anoints Jesus. She pours it on his head as he sits at the table. But the story goes on. It says, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were mad. They were upset. Now John tells us that Judas is the one who starts this discussion. And the disciples kind of get on board. And, and Judas says, this could have been sold for the, and given away to the poor. They were indignant. And the, the Greek word brings out like when a horse, what do you call it when a horse kind of, not, do they snarl? I don't know what they do. They, they, uh, but you know that sound they make when they're upset? That's, that's kind of what this is bringing out. They're, they're, they're mad, they're angered, they're indignant. Why this waste? These are followers of Jesus. Can we really waste something on Jesus? Why this waste? Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Oh, what a wonderfully pious excuse. You know, it was Passover time. And that's what you do during Passover time. You give almsgiving. You give to the poor. This money could have been used for the poor. Well, John tells us that wasn't really Judas's intent. He liked to, liked to dip into the bank account there. Could have been sold and given to the poor. And then in verse 10, again, my favorite word. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? Why do you trouble her? For she has done a good work for me. For the poor, for the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Jesus says that her wasteful giving to him was a good work. Why do you trouble her? You have the poor with you all the time. And he wasn't discounting that you shouldn't help the poor. He says we need to help the poor all the time. But there are times, there are times when maybe it's okay to do it in an extravagant act of beautiful giving out of our love for Jesus. And others may say it's wasteful. Others may not agree with that. But I think Jesus makes it clear that there are times. Did Mary know, Jesus is going to go on and say that she did this for my burial. Did Mary have any idea that she was doing that for his burial? Absolutely not. She was just doing it out of the extravagant devotion of her love for Jesus. And it's amazing what can happen when out of our extravagant devotion and love for Jesus, he can use those things for his purposes. And so Mary does this and the disciples have a problem. But Jesus says, 
don't trouble her, for she has done a good work. And the interesting thing here is that the word that Jesus is using is it means good, but it also means a beautiful, a beautiful work. And it was a term that was used with piety. So he was kind of playing with them, I think, here. You know, you're talking about this pious giving. Well, she has done a beautifully pious thing for me. He goes on and says, For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And so it's true. As you hear the gospel still today, today you hear the story of what she has done. I think her story encourages us and challenges us in how we might be extravagantly showing our love to God in different ways. There might be ways personally, I don't know what those could be for you in your day-to-day life, but ways that that God is inviting you to, to go beyond, to be excessive to be extravagant in your love for God and in your giving to him. There is a way, I believe, that I wrote about in the letter in your bulletin today and that some of you read on the email, that that I believe God is inviting us to do something beautiful in this church and in this community. If you read the letter, you'll know that we had quite a bit of damage done to the window back in the foyer. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, things that need to be replaced. And so we looked into doing that and what that's going to cost, and it's, it's not cheap. But as the board and the finance committee and the decorating committee and the, and the physical plant team looked into all of these things, we began to look at what else maybe needed to be done and to do things right. You know, that's one of the things I love about this church and my experience in this church. This church is about if we're going to do it, let's do it right. And so as we looked at that, we said, what, what can we do? And then, it, and then it started going, let's just not take, like, just fix something. Let's, let's, let's do something beautiful. Let's do something that would inspire and would grow us in our worship and our love for God and the community as well. Now, you see this window right above me, this Good Shepherd window? Now, in the two and a half years that I have been here, the most comments I've gotten from people about any subject or anything are about that window. And what I love is that so many of you have told me how beautiful that window is and how much, how, how often it speaks to you. And... Some of you have also shared, is there any way we can get it lit up a little brighter? <laughs> and so we continue to try to work, because it's an interesting lighting situation back there. So uh, we've been trying to get that better and better, so Christ is a little more lit up than the outskirts. Uh, but isn't it wonderful when you have something of beauty that... There's someone who said, and I don't know who it was, but, but I've never forgotten it. They said, God often uses beauty to enter through the back door of your imagination. And it's true. You see the sunset, you see the flowers, you see a stained glass window, you, you listen to a symphony, you, whatever it is. And that beauty that, and the presence of God slips in when maybe there are doors shut in other places. But through the beauty of things, 
God slips in through the back door of the imagination and, and there's this encounter with God. Now, wouldn't it be really great if the window wasn't just for us? Wouldn't it be great if the window was able to be seen for people who will never set foot inside the sanctuary? What might that say to people? And so, as we looked at replacing these windows along the side, there's five of them, four, three and a half here, and then the fifth one, which you can't see. Um, there's another large window on the side of, of my office, and then the foyer window. We began looking at those, and, and so we thought, what if we were to tell the story of Jesus you know, in these windows? And we could start with the birth of Jesus, his resurrection, him with the children around him, the cross and the thorns, and then the second coming. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be awesome? You see, I think that beauty is a powerful tool that God uses to draw people into a relationship with him. Just look at Jesus. Look at the cross. Even though it's horrible, and it means horrible things, it talks about his beautiful, excessive, extravagant love. We live in a world where things are losing its beauty. We live in a world where, I like to, I like to say, how can I say this? We live in a world where we hear Muzak and not music. Do you know what I'm saying? You know what Muzak is? When you get on an elevator and you hear that background music that doesn't really do anything, it's just background music. You know? And yet God's music is, is just all around in these beautiful things. And, and, and I want us to be able to be a place too, when, I, when we look at these windows, it'll be a place that that sings of God's beauty. I had a professor in college who I was taking music from, and I can still remember her today. And, and she'd be lecturing, but she loved Brahms so much that whenever she heard Brahms being played in a practice room down the hall, she would stop lecturing. She would just stop and she'd go, ah, Brahms. And then she'd get back to her lecturing. And that's what I wonder if... if if some of these windows will do for us and in this community. You know, we live in this world of Muzak going on, but every once in a while you come here and you, and you worship and you, you sit and you see these windows and the people outside of our church will see these windows and remember that there's a, there's a greater song that's being sung. There's a greater story that's being told. There's something bigger than ourselves. See, part of, part of my vision is that I want these windows lit up. Because I would love for them to be seen at night from the outside of our church. I would love to make the people aware around of these windows. I think it's very possible that there would be people when they're struggling at night and they can't sleep or they're wrestling with an issue that they would come by in their car or maybe park and just look at these windows and be reminded that God is with them and that God has come. And maybe this would be a place that would be a tradition around Christmas and Easter time that people come and look at the windows. Why to say, oh, look at those windows? No, but to be reminded of God's beauty through the love of Jesus Christ. His excessive, extravagant act of commitment to us in this world. 
Is it excessive? Maybe. Is it extravagant? Yes. Is it beautiful? I think so. And I think, I think it's good for us to do something extravagant as a gift of love to God. And we always take care of the poor, and we will continue to take care of the poor. You heard us just before Christmas about the shelter we're looking at starting. And I will tell you, there are countless, countless people from our community who come to us for help throughout the week and different times. But I want to invite you today. I want to invite you today to think about how might God be inviting me in my own personal life, with my family, in my work situation, wherever I may be, to show God in excessive and extravagant ways my love for him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your extravagant love and creation. Lord, it's still puzzling to me of why you create so much that we will never even see, at least not in this lifetime. But Lord, you seem to be a God of excessive and extravagant beauty. And so Lord, as we look at our own lives and as we look at our lives as a church here and as I think about these stained glass windows that will be going in, and I think about my own life and how I can show you in ways that maybe are out of my comfort zone of just how I love you and want to give you a gift of my love. I pray for your grace to, to lead us into that, to lead me into that. Because, Lord, no matter how excessive we think our gifts are to you, they are far from it compared to what you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done and who you are to us. Would you take a moment now just in silent prayer to ponder, to ponder God's excessive, extravagant love and devotion for you and for us. Losing myself in bringing.
soul I give you control Consume me from the inside out Lord, let justice and praise Become my embrace To love you from the inside Pablo and Erica to join me out the back door. Uh, 
in service so that you can get to say hi to them and get to meet them as you go out. As we go, I want to encourage you this week to really contemplate God's extravagant and excessive love for you and I. And take some moments this week to look beyond the Muzak and listen for the music of God and his beauty and his creation this week. And don't forget some of the most beautiful creations are in the house in which you live and the people you live with as well. But look and know that God loves you extravagantly. And how might you be inspired to express your love to God this week in an extravagant way? God bless you. Thank you.